Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. There's been a long history of American demagogues. In just the past century, there were, to name a few, Huey Long, Father Coughlin, Theodore Bilbo, Eugene Talmadge, most recently, many would argue Donald Trump. But perhaps no one caused as much damage in a short time as Senator Joseph McCarthy. Larry Ty's latest book is an account of the rise and fall of the Wisconsin Senator under the title Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and brings Larry Ty to our show now. Welcome. Great to be back with you. A lot of your book is drawn from previously unavailable archive material, including McCarthy's unscripted writings and correspondence, personal and professional papers, medical and military records, and recently unsealed transcripts of his uh, closed-door congressional hearings. And you even include a recipe for McCarthy's venison meatballs. Now, he died 63 years ago. Why is it taking so long for this material to be made available? So good question. And the that's a question that biographers have been asking for the last 63 years. When his wife left all of his personal and professional papers to the archives at his alma mater, Marquette University in Milwaukee, she left it with a provision that the papers would become public when their daughter, who was an infant at the time that Joe died, when the daughter either said they would be made public or when the daughter died. And when I started doing my research, I realized I was older than the daughter and she was going to outlive me. So the only way I was going to get it is if the family said that I could have a look at it. And exactly one week after I told my wife and my publisher that that wasn't going to happen, we got a surprise email from the archivist at Marquette said it was going to happen. And I'd love to be able to tell, tell you that it was because I was so charming, but you know me <laughs> and you know that's not the case. I think whether it was an alignment of the stars and the moon or whether I was enough of a pain in the neck that she just wanted to get rid of me and the way to get rid of me was to say yes. I did get access and I got an unusual kind of access, which was she said, you can have a look. And when you stop looking, they will go back under lock and key. Ooh, you had to take a lot of notes then. What kinds of things did you find that hadn't been included in all the other books and articles about McCarthy and McCarthyism? So some things that I found were things that made him look better. And if I could tell you a quick story about one of them. Okay. When, when Joe McCarthy ran for Senate, he ran under um, the title he gave himself this uh, title of being Tail Gunner Joe. And mm. that was suggesting that he was a returning World War II hero and he was going to do for the state of Wisconsin uh, the same kind of patriotic duty that he had done for the United States fighting overseas. And quickly, as journalists and others watched the way he embellished things in his life, the world came to believe that Tail Gunner Joe was a lie that, in fact, he was a land-based intelligence agent in the South Pacific Island where he was stationed, and that he got the medals that he got because of political pressure, but not because he had earned them. And there was actually a national 
television documentary, an hour-long film called Tail Gunner Joe, using that as a disparaging title. Well, in his personal papers were his handwritten diaries from when he was on that South Pacific island, and they documented in detail every mission that he volunteered for. He was, in fact, his official duty was as a land-based intelligence agent. He volunteered for perilous missions to fly in the back of the plane as a tail gunner, and the medals that he got, his diary show and letters from his comrades who took him up on the planes showed that he, in fact, was the tail gunner that he thought. And that to me is interesting for a couple reasons. One is because it suggests if you lie often enough the way Joe McCarthy mm -hmm. did, nobody's going to believe you when you're telling the truth. But it also raises a question with so many people doubting his story of his heroism during the war, why didn't he open up these diaries and these letters and let the world see? And I don't know because he never told us, but I think that there were actually, even for an opportunist like Joe McCarthy, there were things in his life, like his service for the Marines during World War II, that were too sacred for him to open up his papers and say, here's the proof. I think he felt either you believe that he deserved the medals that he got or you didn't, and that's one of the only areas of his life that I can think that that was true. Ironically... During sure. that campaign that you mentioned, where he presented himself as Tail Gunner Joe, wasn't McCarthy supported by the Communist Party uh, in that campaign against Robert La Follette? Yes. So that was one of the great ironies, that the Communist Party, while not openly supporting him, disliked La Follette for, uh, La Follette for enough reasons that they tacitly supported McCarthy in that primary and that was something that he spent the rest of his life trying to get out from under, that this ultimate anti-communist actually might have been given a political boost or was given a small political boost by the communists. Can but we call the every... nastiness campaign against La Follette an early example of what came to be called McCarthyism? Yes, it was an early example of McCarthyism in a couple ways. One was that he told lots of lies about his opponent. His opponent was tired. After thir serving three terms, La Follette had gotten to become what we would today call a captive of Washington enough that those kinds of attacks were legitimate. But McCarthy invented things on everything from his being a Virginia squire who was more interested in his estate in Virginia than in Wisconsin. And in fact, the house he had bought in Virginia was a beat-up old house. He never really lived there. McCarthy embellished in a way that would become his trademark. But he also did something um, before he had actually entered that race, which was make a political transformation that was something that very few people paid attention to, was one of the biggest flip-flops in American political history. This guy who had first run for office as a district attorney in Wisconsin, as a flaming New Deal Democrat, huge supporter of FDR, realized that in his part of Wisconsin, you weren't gonna win office by being a Democrat or a liberal. So he ended up running for the Republican nomination to the far right of La Follette and didn't blink an eye. Sometime in the middle of the night, he must have changed his party registration, and he went from 
flaming liberal to coal warrior icon. Although it, it's an interesting early story. He was forced to drop out of school when he was 14. And he so, graduated from high school when he was already 20 something. Yeah. So he did. He left school after the eighth grade. He became a poultry tycoon. He bought thousands of hens. He had a very successful business until a virus swept through his flock. And at age 20, he looked around and realized, I don't even have a high school degree. He, his chicken farming wasn't going to get him where he wanted to be, which was in electoral politics. His working at a Cashway 7-Eleven kind of store wasn't going to get him where he wanted to be. So at age 20, he enrolled in high school. He showed just how smart and how ambitious he was by finishing four years of high school in a single year. And then, with a white lie to his credit, he entered Marquette University, signing the paper that said he had completed uh, four years of high school, when in fact he had completed four years of high school work, but just one year. And then he went on to graduate from Marquette Law School and practiced law for a few years, but he also earned some money from gambling. Did he gamble throughout his life? He gambled throughout his life, he drank throughout his life, and he cut corners throughout his life. And he made it through law school. He had three jobs. He loved to gamble. And he made it through law school not by studying hard or attending his classes, but by being smart enough that in the cram sessions with his small breakout group of law students, he was enough of a sieve in absorbing what he had to do that he made it through law school. And the only difficult courses it looked like he had in, in, uh, at Marquette, which was a famous Catholic university, was courses in ethics. Now, you write that one of your goals with this book is to correct misconceptions. Um, what are the, some of the misconceptions? I, I just saw a film uh, that suggested, a film about Roy Cohn, that suggested that McCarthy was secretly gay, but he was a notorious homophobe. Uh, and I, I've always was curious about uh, his being, presenting himself as a homophobe, and then having Roy Cohn serve as his chief counsel, Roy Cohn uh, pretty much everybody knew was gay. Yes. So Roy Cohn was gay. Roy Cohn was McCarthy's partner in what became known as the Lavender Scare, the crusade to root out gays as well as communists within the government. And Roy Cohn had no trouble justifying his hypocrisy. He, he stayed in the closet. He, uh, it gave him a fig leaf of protection by being a homophobe, people he hoped weren't going to accuse him of being homosexual. Um, Joe McCarthy's critics uh, publicly and continually suggested a whispering campaign, suggested in a whispering campaign that Joe was gay. I don't believe that Joe McCarthy was gay. The FBI investigated every charge that was raised against him. Um, there is no evidence that he was gay. On the other hand, I think the whispers helped him get married quicker than he might have wanted to get married and helped his assistant, who became his girlfriend, become his wife quicker than Joe was ready for that. Now, uh, he, he, this brings me to talking about Robert Kennedy. You wrote a book on Robert Kennedy, a biography. Did that help in your research for this book? 
it helped inspire this book. I was intrigued. Um, I did 450 interviews for my Bobby Kennedy book, but the only one that I considered vital that I could never have done without was with Bobby's widow, Ethel. And Ethel Kennedy said something to me that I couldn't quite get out of my head. She said, the public may have thought of Joe McCarthy as a monster, but to us he was actually, as she said it, just plain fun. He didn't rant or roar. He was a normal guy. And she said that based on the fact that Bobby's first serious job out of law school was as a young aide to Joe McCarthy. And Bobby Kennedy, who, as your listeners know, would go on to become this iconic liberal character, started his life as the protege for the ultimate conservative cold warrior. And the idea that Ethel Kennedy said there was this other side to Joe McCarthy totally intrigued me about Joe McCarthy. I was also intrigued by the fact that Bobby Kennedy, even though Jack Kennedy, who was running for president, I think, the time, uh, from the time he came out of the womb, even though Jack told Bobby to keep his distance from Joe McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy went to Joe McCarthy's funeral, stayed his loyal friend till the end, and never ran away from that political legacy. So the idea that we had these two characters, one who started life as a liberal and became an arch-conservative, and the other who started life as an arch-conservative and became an iconic liberal, their paths crossed, their trajectories crossed, and the whole experience with Bobby made me intrigued to try to get at that other side of what Joe McCarthy had that made Ethel Kennedy fall in love with him. Well, they had been old family friends, and hadn't McCarthy even dated two of Bobby's sisters? And, uh, he and did. Bobby, and, and also, uh, they, Bobby named McCarthy the godfather of his first child, Kathleen. Well, so what happened was McCarthy, in fact, was a friend of Papa Joe Kennedy. And through Joe Kennedy Sr., um, McCarthy became friendly with the rest of the kids. He dated Eunice and Patricia. He tried to date the younger sister, Jean. He would play softball, play a terrible game of softball where they would bench him um, at the famous lawn in Hyannis. And the relationship became close enough, especially with Bobby and Ethel, that this rumor circulated that has become a piece of history that Kathleen, their eldest child, was Joe McCarthy's godchild. And the one who told me about that rumor was Ethel, and she told it as if it was true. Kathleen was incredibly quick to show me the evidence saying it's not true, that, uh. that there was a friendship that was a sign of how close it was, and some journalist sometime must have said it, and it just got repeated over the years to the point where Ethel believed it. Well, not surprising when you're talking about McCarthy, that things got said and repeated, even though they weren't necessarily true. But what was true, interestingly, is that John F. Kennedy was the only Democrat to not vote in favor of the Senate's censure of McCarthy in 1954. So that is true, and Jack Kennedy said at the time that it was because he had a bad back and he was being operated on. He did have a bad back, it was operated on, and that was an excuse. The fact is, he could have done what other senators were doing. He could have found somebody who was going to vote the opposite way that he voted and paired the vote. He could have told the public, this is how I would have voted. But instead, Jack Kennedy, realizing 
how important the Catholic vote was in his home state of Massachusetts. Realizing the kind of support Joe McCarthy had among Catholics everywhere, and especially in Massachusetts, he ducked the issue. He ducked the issue for his stakes back in Massachusetts. He ducked the issue because he was going to run for president, and he didn't want to alienate McCarthy. But most of all, he ducked the issue because he was paying Joe McCarthy back. Joe McCarthy, when Jack Kennedy first ran for senator in Massachusetts against a guy named Lodge, the, the Republican Lodge, had he had Joe, Car- Joe McCarthy in to support his candidacy, might have eaten away enough at Jack Kennedy's Catholic support that it could have put him over the top in a close election. Joe McCarthy stayed out of the state because Papa Joe Kennedy told him to, and Jack was forever grateful. I'm speaking on Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM with Larry Tai, who's written quite a few books and even co-authored one with Kitty Dukakis. Uh, his latest is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. So he went to law school and he actually, he uh, ran, when did he start running for office? And what kind of office was he running for initially? So the first office that he ran for is one of my favorites, which was just president of his law school class. And he ran for office against a guy named Charlie Curran. And the two of them had made a gentleman's agreement that they would each vote for the other, that that was what gentlemen did. You weren't going to vote for yourself. And both of them kept to that agreement until it turned out to be a tie vote. And when the vote was equal, McCarthy voted for himself in the second round, and Curran kept his promise and voted for McCarthy. So McCarthy wins by two votes. Curran goes up to him afterwards and confronts him, and McCarthy says, I spent so much time campaigning and telling people how great he was that I believed it as well, and you wouldn't want me to vote for anybody but the best (laughs) candidate, would you? Now, that was where the story in the conventional telling ends. In fact, there's this whole other element, and this is what I call the Ethel Kennedy element, the idea of him being a decent guy. He ended up becoming friends and earning this extraordinary respect from Curran by borrowing a car and going to Curran's father's funeral. He did it in a way that was really unusual for somebody who had had this history of the relationship. But Joe McCarthy could, during the day, savage a witness at a congressional hearing, and that night invite them out to a drink as if it was all a game and I'm a good guy. And that's the kind of guy McCarthy was. So how many, he ran for political office. How long before he decided, excuse me, to run for the Senate? Um, Too soon. So he ran for district attorney as a Democrat, lost, ran for circuit court judge, which was a nonpartisan office, the perfect transition for a guy who quietly wanted to change parties, and he won. He went off to World War II, and I told you that he had actually been telling the truth about his being a hero during the war, but with Joe McCarthy, it was never that simple. He also violated every Army or every Marine Corps rule that mattered, and one of them was that you shall not run for political office while you're in the armed services. McCarthy ran for Senate um, for the first time when he was in the Marines. He had enormous banners, McCarthy for Senate, strung along his tent, along his Jeep. 
And he ran a campaign in exactly the way that he knew that Army or that uh, military rules said he shouldn't be doing, and he lost that first race. Then in 1946, when he was back as a circuit judge, he ran again. He violated again rules saying that nonpartisan judicial um, appointees or, or uh, elected officials shouldn't run for elective office because it was unseemly and potentially unethical because they were judges and supposed to be neutral. He ignored that. He ran for office. He beat La Follette, as we talked about in the Republican primary. He easily beat the Democratic um, nominee, and he went to Washington as arguably the least prepared person to take mm -hmm. up his seat in the Senate that year. Was he popular with his Senate colleagues? Uh, he was unknown, an unknown in the first three years as a senator. Every time he had a contact with fellow senators, he managed to do something to rub them the wrong way. But he was a backbencher who looked like he was on his way to being a one-term senator when things changed for him in 1950. That's when he hit upon anti-communism as his cause. But you write that he was anti-elite long before he was anti-red. So was he like President Trump in that his real success came from tapping into the resentments of the outs against the ins? He was like President Trump in loads of ways. And one of them, in a defining way, was attacking elites and looking for scapegoats. So to the people in the heartland in Wisconsin, if you blamed people on the East and West Coast for all their ills, if you blame bankers and Wall Street and Washington, that played well. He was the classic populist. Long before he knew anything about a communism issue, long before he went after gays, it was anti-everything that small-town Wisconsin resented. But was a turning point uh, on February 9th, 1950, when he uh, spoke at a Lincoln Day dinner in Willing, West Virginia? Uh, you say, was that the turning point when he made that, what you say was a last-minute decision to substitute a talk on housing policy for a speech that alleged that communists had infiltrated the U.S. State Department? Yes. So the, there's a famous Republican um, event every year called the Lincoln Day Dinner. And to honor the birthday of Abe Lincoln, senators and other prominent Republicans were invited to give speeches all across America and still are. And if you were a prominent senator, you'd get invited to give a speech in New York or Boston or San Francisco. If you were Joe McCarthy and this kind of backbencher, you're invited to give a speech in a place like Wheeling, West Virginia, where nobody's going to pay attention. He goes there that night eager for one thing more than anything, which is to somehow matter. He was looking for an issue that he could grab onto that would give him the spotlight and save him the embarrassment of going down to an electoral defeat in 1952. He shows up at that dinner with two speeches, and as you say, one of them is a snoozer on national housing policy, which is something he actually knew something about. Had he given that speech that night, you and I wouldn't be here 70 years later talking about Joe McCarthy. But instead, he reached into his briefcase for the barn-burning speech that if, if we were doing this on television instead of radio, I'd be waving a sheaf of papers in my hand, because that's what Joe McCarthy did that night. And he said in those papers, 
were the names of 205 subversives and spies working for the Soviets in the U.S. State Department. He recognized brilliantly that while lots of people had been anti-communist before him, that the idea of instead of generally saying there are traitors out there, the idea of being able to name the traitors and count them, he said he had the names, he said there were 205 of them, We'll never know what was really in his hand, but what we do know is it was not a list of 205 spies at the State Department. Because after that speech, he headed off on a cross-country tour, and uh, the number of Communist Party members he claimed were working in the State Department kept changing. A few days later in Salt Lake City, the number was 57, not 205. Um, and when news reporters were asked for proof, didn't he tell a reporter that he got the number 57 from the bottle of Heinz 57 ketchup on uh, so that's table. my favorite that's my favorite explanation he didn't say it but somebody said it about him he was a big uh -huh. hamburg eater and that he had gotten it off the Heinz 57 bottle wherever he got it he was brilliant at recognizing if you're going to break a big story like that charging that president truman was hiding 250, uh, 205 spies or 57 spies at the State Department. If you're going to break a story like that, you don't do it in your New York or in Washington, where there are sophisticated reporters who know who to call at the State Department on a minute's notice to get their reply. You do it in a place like Wheeling, West Virginia, or Reno, Nevada, or all the burgs out there that he was visiting on this trip, where the reporters are the local AP reporter who has no clue on a deadline how to get a response, especially at night or on a weekend. And McCarthy understood the rules the press played by in those days, and he played the press according to those rules. And what happened after his Wheeling visit was he ended up on the front page of every newspaper in America. The crusade was born, and this guy wasn't about to turn back. And the fact but wasn't that he, he might have... Wasn't he I'm just sorry, following but, Truman's lead? I'm sorry. Finish what you were saying. Yes. No, no, no. So you're exactly right. He was following <laughs> Truman's lead. And in fairness to Joe McCarthy, the whole question about the loyalty of people in the government was one that Harry Truman, who ended up becoming McCarthy's harshest critic, he had set up all these loyalty tests for employees playing into the hands of anti-communist crusaders and going beyond, there were Soviet threats then. There were spies probably in the State Department. The problem was that neither Truman's loyalty oaths nor McCarthy's made-up fraudulent lists were going to catch those spies. Most of the, the 24 carat spies were long gone. Hmm. Joe McCarthy spent his entire career looking for a... Uh, Julius Rosenberg or an Alger Hiss, a real big fish that he could point to. He never found a big fish. He never found an especially small fish. He only found fish that smelled. Now, Truman's 1947 loyalty order identified 299 subversive organizations, including the Jewish Culture Society, which sounds to me like a bit of anti-Semitism, despite uh, the fact that we recently had gone to war with Nazi Germany. Don't some historians believe that anti-communism of the 1950s might have been called Trumanism instead of McCarthyism? Or was McCarthy pushing things a bit further? 
So I think it could have been called Trumanism. It could have been called Diism after the first and most powerful chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee, Martin Dyes. It could have been called lots of things, but nobody had quite the flair, this demagogue's skill of identifying an issue and associating your own name with it to get an ism named after them. And Joe McCarthy wasn't the most effective anti-communist. In fact, I think legitimate anti-communists of the era would say that he was their worst enemy, that when McCarthyism became a slur, uh, that he took down the credibility of the movement as his own credibility waned. Do you think that McCarthy was simply a self-aggrandizing demagogue, or did he actually, was he an actually a true believer in a communist threat? I think he was both. I think he started out as an opportunist looking for any issue, and one that he knew very little about, he was willing to embellish and outright lie about, and that was the way he launched his career as an anti-communist in the most cynical way. But I think by the end, by the time he was repudiated, uh, by the time he took on the U.S. Army, I think he had become a true believer in his cause, and the two strongest supporters of McCarthyism and of McCarthy were Joe McCarthy and his wife, Jean. But uh, a lot of Americans went along with it. Didn't polls show that around 50% of all Americans felt good about McCarthy compared to just 29% who had an unfavorable view? Yes. So George Gallup told us that at the start of 1950, one in every two Americans thought that Joe McCarthy was a great guy and doing a good job. And, and that, that the number, American institutions were infested by communists who were under the control of the Kremlin? Absolutely. So the, all the polling that, um, that Gallup and others were doing back then said that people believed in McCarthy. They believed that communists were not just a threat overseas, but they were a threat in our own government. And that 50% number, to put it into context, that made him, as a national figure, the second most popular guy out there in that era. The only politician in America who was more popular than Joe McCarthy was our war hero, President Dwight Eisenhower. And we'll get to him in just a moment after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large. Oh, I'm the best investigator in the Senate Hall. Who cares about the evidence? I use a crystal ball. I've taught J. Edgar Hoover and his Boy Scout FBI that proof is not required when you're out to catch a spy. When I started chasing communists, I claimed 205. And then I swore it was 81 to keep the thing alive. Then 57 varieties of reds and pinks galore. They're climbing on the ceiling and they're creeping on the floor. Totally do. Try to sue. Before we get back to my conversation with Larry Ty, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us weather the storm of financial problems that the pandemic has rained down upon us here. We need all of our listeners who can to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given then the number two WBAI.org or call 516 six two zero three six zero two to help keep this show and the station on the air again that number is five one six six two zero thirty six zero two and um an especially helpful way to support wbai throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitments so that it's 
only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of this station or what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at BAI, but we've lost a good number of them to the financial hardships that the coronavirus has brought. And joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lynn, to tell you about a special gift that we're offering anyone who signs up now to become a BAI buddy. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. Yes, anyone who goes to the web right now at give to WBAI.org or calls up at 516-620-3602 and becomes a BAI buddy, a sustaining member like Leonard was just talking about for the monthly amount of $10 or more. If you do that today in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, you'll get a free copy of the book that Leonard and Larry Ty have been discussing. This is, of course, Mr. Ty's book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Just a, a fascinating deep dive uh, with some exclusive uh, research that, that Larry Ty has done in this book. It, it will be yours for uh, for becoming a BAI buddy today. And of course, you'll also be helping us uh, plan for the future and sending a message to management that Leonard Lopate at Large is a show that, that you like, that you rely on, that you tune into uh, every weekday from one to two for these one hour deep dive interviews that we bring you. And you know, Leonard, as we've talked about a bunch, this week is kind of fun because this is one of those weeks where we've been able to work an overarching theme together. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be off the air the next couple days, but when we come back on Friday, we're going to have uh, Heather Cox Richardson discussing how the South won the Civil War, her book, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. So it's Civil War on Friday. Today is uh, McCarthy. Yesterday was Hollywood and the bomb, and you know, so w obviously uh, we're we're trying to uh, trying to even have a broader scope this week, I guess, right? And and I want to remind our listeners that we are totally listener supported. Unlike other, even public radio stations, we don't take uh, we don't run ads or the equivalent of ads. We don't take money from foundations. We rely totally on our listeners for our support. It keeps us pure, but it also puts us kind of behind a financial eight ball at times. And uh, right now, when things are kind of rough, we really hope that uh, some of you who have uh, never become members or have become members and let your membership lapse or are haven't decided whether or not to become BAI buddies, whatever, that you will make that call now to 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to WBAI.org and either become a member or uh, if, if you want to, and we would love for you to do this, become a BAI buddy. Anything right. else you want to add to that well, as, before as I go back to Larry Ty? As you said recently on the air, Leonard, uh, yes, if you're uh, – Subscription as a member of BAI has lapsed. This is your renewal notice right now, the sound of our voices. 
And yeah, I mean, one last time to give the number out, 516-620-3602, or you can go to the web, give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number to WBAI.org. If you become a BAI buddy, uh, that's someone who makes a sustaining pledge each month of $10 or more, we'll send you a free copy of the book that Leonard is discussing, Larry Ty's Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, but whatever level you're able to step up and whether the book, having a copy of the book matters to you or not, maybe you've got a giant stack of books you're getting through. What we need is our listeners to help this show stay on the air because as it is a desperate time for so many people right now, and obviously we'd never ask anyone to give who isn't able, uh, it's a desperate time at BAI too. You know, we're fighting for our survival in what is a very difficult funding model during a pandemic, but there have been some bright spots. Some of you have been stepping up and thank you so much for that. Uh, please make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and from all of us, thanks. And thank you, Jesse. And uh, let's get back to Larry Tai. Uh, we're talking about his book, Demagogue, The Life and Shadow, and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Uh, but he is also the author of Bobby Kennedy, of Satchel's Superman, The Father of Spin, Homelands, Rising from the Rails, and, and the co-author with Kitty Dukakis of, of Shock. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI. New York, 99.5 FM. He had uh, some favorite targets. Uh, one of them was Harvard. Why Harvard in particular? With Harvard, which he called Kremlin on the Charles. So before I answer that, if I could just say one word about your fundraising campaign. Please. Um, I think there is no more appropriate thing to be asking of listeners when we're talking about a demagogue like Joe McCarthy. The antidote to demagoguery, and McCarthy was the archetype of American demagogues. The antidote is good journalism, and in today's world, that means public radio. And I'd like to offer something. I don't know if any listeners care about it, but the anybody who calls in and gives um, the fundraising person your address, if they would want it, I'd love to send them a book plate personalized for them on the book that they would get as part of their um, reward for calling in. But I think that the, so going to your question um, about uh, McCarthy and remind me the. Um, well, the I was word, asking about why Harvard in particular. Well, Harvard. Was, was that something so, that played well to his so supporters? It played well in two ways. One is it played well because Harvard was the ultimate representation of the Eastern establishment that McCarthy was railing against and that worked for him and other populists. And the other was because the guy who was taking over as president of Harvard, a guy named Nathan Pusey, who was a long-serving president, had been president of a college in McCarthy's hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin, named Lawrence. And the when he was at Lawrence, one of the things that he did in his later years there was took on Joe McCarthy. He became one of his staunchest critics. And McCarthy never attacked him when he was at Lawrence because he was too powerful in his hometown. But as soon as, almost the moment that Pusey was named as the new president of Harvard, McCarthy went after him and went after him and others at Harvard and said that that was a place that was training our smart young men by turning them over to communist professors and a communist or a left-wing president of the university. And again, his proof 
was almost non-existent, but the temptation to attack an Ivy League target was extraordinary. McCarthy looks very much like a bully in all of the TV footage I've seen of him, but you say he knew how to play the righteous bully in a way that made money for the media. So he was a media darling? So he was a lot like a politician in Washington is today. He was somebody who rose to prominence because the media gave him extraordinary play. It didn't take him very seriously at first, and it gave him exactly the front page headlines that he wanted and that increased his popularity. But he was, he also understood the way the media worked. He worked deadlines of reporters brilliantly. He charmed them. But when the news got bad, McCarthy knew to attack the newsmen. And he knew that that would play. He put them at times in dangerous situations where he'd call out a newspaper reporter at a public event and the crowd would get angry and nasty. And so McCarthy had it both ways with the press. That sounds familiar. Um, he, uh, still many uh, politicians, celebrities, and much of the press treated him well, although Time and Life magazines initially confronted McCarthy. What led them to back off and, and eventually even applaud his work? It was McCarthy's ability to exact vengeance. He would exact, exact vengeance partly by, as I said, calling out and naming individual reporters and inventing charges against them. He would exact vengeance in another way, which is going after the financial supporters of the media outlets and telling advertisers to boycott them. And he did that most effectively in a way that resonated across the media world with the most well-read columnist in America of his era, a guy who named Drew Pearson, who was the bravest of the early journalists in going after McCarthy. History has, has given us the story that the guy who slayed the dragon was Edward R. Murrow, that it was Murrow who took down McCarthy. Murrow, if he were around, would be the first one to admit that he was late to the game. And it was print reporters like uh, Drew Pearson and reporters for the Washington Post and the New York Times who, at great peril to themselves, took on John McCarthy. Drew Pearson ended up paying two prices for making McCarthy his enemy. One is his biggest sponsors back down on supporting his radio show, and the other is that he actually was physically accosted Ooh. by McCarthy, and they had to be separated by the great Quaker peacemaker Richard Nixon when they were at a Washington supper club and got <laughs> into it with one another. The one Republican senator to firmly defy McCarthy was also the Senate's only woman, Margaret Chase Smith of Maine. Uh, so the, she took yeah, him on. Go ahead. She took him on. She took him on early, and she penned what she called a declaration of conscience, which was basically suggesting that rather than his enemies being un-American, that all of John McCarthy's tactics were distinctly un-American. She had six Senate co-signatories. McCarthy attacked her immediately by getting her thrown off his committee and branding her. He was a brilliant name caller, and again, in a way that seems familiar. And he called her the Snow White and her six dwarfs. Now, President Eisenhower worked behind the scenes to help bring McCarthy down, but you dubbed him the enabler in chief and accused him of a policy of appeasement against McCarthy. 
So I based that on a lot of things, but my most compelling evidence was what Eisenhower's own brother Milton said. Milton Eisenhower, from the time that Dwight was elected president in, at the end of 1952, Milton Eisenhower whispered in his brother, brother's ear saying, give up some of your popularity and take on that bully Joe McCarthy. And Eisenhower told his brother and anybody who would listen, McCarthy has to bring himself down or his fellow senators have to bring him down. He always had an excuse why he couldn't do it. He said McCarthy would eventually crumble. He did work quietly, but not nearly quickly or effectively enough behind the scenes. And during the two years that he waited, McCarthy destroyed careers and actually had people committing suicide. And if there were no price to pay, I would say Eisenhower did it wisely like the general who waited to marshal his troops. But too many people suffered in the interim, and Eisenhower was too popular to let him get away with waiting as long as he did. Do you think that things would have worked out differently if McCarthy hadn't tried to smear Army General Ralph Zwicker, who uh, had been a hero on D-Day and also was a World War II comrade of General Eisenhower? Yes, so I think McCarthy failed to see, having taken on effectively the State Department, the Voice of America, the government printing office, and lots of others, he failed to see that there was one institution in America that was too big to bully, and that was the armed services. He, went he also after went after General, Marshall, General Marshall, didn't he? He went after the ultimate war hero, General Marshall. That's another place where Eisenhower, Eisenhower and Marshall were great buddies, and Eisenhower never delivered the incredible speech that he had written attacking McCarthy for attacking Marshall. That speech went on red. Uh, McCarthy went on attacking generals. He accused Marshall, this extraordinary figure who had been a World War II hero, with Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, he accused him of perpetrating an infamy so great as to dwarf any other in our history. Right. Just the rhetoric was extraordinary, and ultimately McCarthy got his comeuppance because finally the Army developed backbone, and Eisenhower did, and in the most famous hearings that the Senate had ever held, the Army-McCarthy hearings, McCarthy was exposed to America to TV viewers all across the country as the town bully that he was. It got great TV uh, ratings. So you're saying that the way he blustered and ranted turned public opinion uh, against him? Yes. So again, when you look at the history books, the wonderful, simple answer at the moment that spelled Joe McCarthy's downfall was when a smart, Harvard-trained lawyer named Joe Welch stood up and said when McCarthy attacked Welch's young associate and said this was a guy who had communist influence. Welch stood up and said, Senator, Because he had belonged to the National Lawyers Guild. Exactly, the National which, Lawyers which Guild. A which he said that was a legal arm of the Communist Party. Was it? Was it even leftist? So it was, it was a liberal organization. It was not an arm of the Communist Party. And it was something that McCarthy had promised that he would never do. He had promised before the hearing started that he wouldn't go after. Everybody knew that, that this guy named Fisher was somebody who McCarthy would be likely to target. And McCarthy said he wouldn't do that. And the, he, had, he ended up not being able to resist. He went after him, and Joe Welch delivered that famous line, have you no decency, sir, at long last, have you no decency. And in fact, 
Welch, who was a great performer, was ready to deliver, to deliver that line at whatever he thought the most opportune moment was. He decided that he had found that moment, but by the time he uttered those words that went down in history, I think much of America had already been asking the same question and had already decided that the guy who they thought was their hero at the start of the hearings was, in fact, a bully. Now, some people uh, have become critical more recently of Joseph Welsh because he also did a bit of, of gay bashing during those hearings. And uh, he, he did. wasn't he, didn't he hint that McCarthy might be gay? He did. He used the word pansy. He hinted in a way that wasn't very subtle that Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn um, were pansies. And he showed no shame. He was going to do whatever it took to defend his client, including... Um, striking at the very kind of gay bashing, um, uh, giving in to the very kind of gay bashing that McCarthy had done. Um, and I think it was sad because it was unnecessary at that point, but it was also a sign of just how retrograde America was on issues of gay rights then, and that won him probably a whole lot more viewers than it lost him. What happened to McCarthy's political career after that? Uh, he so, he obviously lost the support of, of much of the public, although I'm sure there are some people who remain loyal to the end. At the end of the hearings in August of 1954, Joe McCarthy's popularity that we had talked about earlier, starting out as a 50% popularity rating, by the end of the hearings, he was down to 34. By the end of the year, the U.S. Senate, in a very rare move, had condemned a fellow member. And at that condemnation, that overwhelming vote of condemnation of Joe McCarthy, while it didn't end his life there, it ended his political life. It ended his sense of having any purpose. It ended any respect any of his colleagues in the Senate showed for him. And from there on, it was a downward spiral for him that we can now measure because we have his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital and can measure the way his consumption of alcohol soared as his political fortunes plummeted. Did he remain in the Senate? He did. He remained in the Still Senate. His had term? He, run to, he remained in the Senate through the rest of his life. He never ran for re-election because he didn't survive long enough. He died a year before he would have been up for re-election. It was unclear whether he would have run for office. I think it was pretty clear that had he run, he would have lost. And... He just became a guy who had lost any sense of purpose at that point. And he was just 48 years old, so the alcoholism must have been pretty powerful. You say he had other issues, that he may have been bipolar as well, although that won't kill you. It won't kill you, and it was masked by his alcoholism, I think. Um, what we do know is that the official cause of death in the coroner's report, as reported in every newspaper across America, was that he died of acute hepatitis, we now know from his medical records that that was a fig leaf to try to give a more socially acceptable cause of death. He died of all the effects of alcoholism. And for the last two days of his life, he had something exceedingly rare. He had a corpsman at his side taking down every rant and rave that he uttered, taking down everything his nurse or his doctor said to him, all of his medical reports, and I think it was because in a guy who spent his life building conspiracies, 
that the military knew that there would be, unless it was well-documented, conspiracy theories on how he died. And there are, and they aren't true, and he died of his drinking. Now, it's interesting that today there is a lot of talk about changing the names of the Washington Redskins of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, during the McCarthy time, didn't the Cincinnati Reds baseball team temporarily change their name to the Redlegs? Uh, they did, and that was the, I think, a direct outgrowth of the exact Red Scare that Joe McCarthy helped reignite in America, and it became so crazy that a baseball team couldn't be called the Reds. Nobody wanted to be red or pink or mm -hmm. anything associated with all of McCarthy's smears. And now, ironically, the Republican Party is the Red Party and the Democrats are the Blues. Uh, yes, yeah, so lots of ironies today and lots of sense of how Joe McCarthy wasn't the first bully or demagogue in American history, but he was the architect, he wrote the playbook, and people are using it incredibly effectively today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, Larry. Uh, Larry Ty, who now runs the Boston-based Health Coverage Fellowship, that's a whole other story. Uh, his latest book, what is this, your fifth or so? Sixth? Uh, eighth book, yes. Ah, eighth. This one is called Demagogue, the Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, and it's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. It was great as always being with you. Thank you, Leonard. And that does it, that for, does it for today's show. If you are just discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And uh, we uh, invite you to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. And if you would like to write me about this or any of our past shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned uh, before, WBAI is uh, in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. And so if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this unique 100% listener-supported radio station alive in the New York metropolitan area. We know a lot of you have already stepped up. Listeners like Andrew Rasulo of Valley Cottage in Rockland County. Thank you so much, Andrew. And thank you to everyone who has helped keep this show and this station on the air. We are powered by your generosity alone. We're off for the next couple of days, but please join us again on Friday when Heather Cox Richardson will discuss her book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America, as our History Week continues on Leonard Lopate at Large. See you then.